When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. We have a very special guest this week, Melanie Chandra, who is, geez, she has so many different things. She's Stanford-educated mechanical engineer, former McKinsey consultant, former beauty queen, model, actress, producer, philanthropist. It goes on and on and on. Melanie and I met through a friend in common who's been shouted out on this show a couple of times, Sean Gupta, who is sort of like... uh, kind of a media, South Asian media kingpin in New York. He has a a group that he organizes. So we met a year ago and then we saw each other at Zarna Garg's launch special for her one in a billion comedy special on Amazon. And then we recently spoke together on a panel. So Melanie, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for asking me to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to speak to you today. So thank you. So of all the things, like I said, engineer, I, Class president at Stanford too. I, I, uh, I dug that up. St- student body president, actually. So okay. one, one step above. Wow. Yeah. So of all of those things I've mentioned, like I said, mechanical engineer, student body president, consultant, beauty queen, model, actress, producer, mother, philanthropist. What of the things that you've done could you say you're most proud of? Well, I say I would say the most challenging is motherhood for sure, and trying okay. to balance all I of can my. Relate. Yep. <laughs> well, I can't relate, but I can, I've seen that. <laughs> um, just uh, trying to pursue my creative passions while being a mother of two young kids is is definitely a challenge. So, if we're talking about what I'm most proud of, is still continuing on in my creative pursuits while mm-hmm. having two young kids under the age of five. I love acting. I love storytelling. I've been getting into producing the last few years. And I really think despite my trajectory being you know, very technical and philanthropic and all these various things I've done, I think it's always led me in this direction. It was a childhood dream of mine to become an actor. And early on too, I knew I wanted to produce and bring other stories to the big screen. And so I'm very fulfilled in this journey of mine and I'm excited to explore it further for sure. So mother, hardest job, Mm -hmm. most rewarding, but acting and producing is childhood passions that Mm -hmm. have been realized. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, My, this is uh, just a genuinely, uh, I was just wanted to know, do you get any sleep? Is that, do you have time for that? Or is that just like, you know, I'll do one of the, I'll, I'll cross that off the list later on. Yeah. Um, I try to catch up like one day a week, but I'm generally very sleep deprived 
to be honest. Mm -hmm. But it makes me much more efficient with the time I do have. So I'm one of those people, if you don't give me a deadline, it's not going to get done until like the last hour. But if you tell me I have one hour to write a script, like I will knock something out for you. So That's amazing. (laughs) Maybe not one hour to write a script, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like if I have deadlines, I can, I can meet that. But if I don't, I'm going to find time to, maybe it's good to like do nothing and relax for a really long time. No, I, I kind of can relate to that as, as a lawyer, it's become Pavlovian that, you know, for the first couple of years, I was aggravated by how everyone's like, I need this now. I need this now. And you're like, you know, could you please you know, give me a manageable, you know, reasonable amount of period to turn or of time to turn this around. But now you get so used to it that if someone doesn't need it immediately, it's like, what, what should I, I don't know how to prioritize because right. normally it's just like dealing with crisis after crisis after crisis. Exactly. Having to balance and juggle all those things, I think is probably a skill in and of itself. And it, it's the kind of thing that you get better with practice and you know, at least I you know I just personally like, when I feel myself like breaking down and I need to like take a break or maybe not go to a particular event or just like spend the weekend in because it's just been too much in a row nonstop. I feel like you kind of have to just know when to slow, slow things down. And for me, it's become more common, you know, as I get older, but there's so many opportunities. There's so many things that I think are interesting that I'm passionate about just like you, that it's like rest isn't necessarily a priority, but you have to just listen to your body. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so go to Stanford. It's an amazing school. You get an engineering degree. You're a student body president. You get a job at McKinsey. In a lot of ways, that is, if you were to script like the ideal South Asian career <laughs> path, that that was it. You you checked all the boxes and then some, right? Some things uh-huh. that some people only dream of. And then you decide to pivot into acting. You said it earlier, it was a childhood dream, but can you walk me through that thought process? Because I think it's a very courageous decision. I think a lot of us in the community, we have side hustles, but personally, like I haven't been courageous enough to take the plunge. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the moment or can you t- walk us through that thought process and what the moment was where you decided to go for it? So I'll take a, a little step back and tell you why I decided to pursue engineering. It was something I was I really loved math and science. So it was nothing, you know, my parents didn't force me to do engineering, but it was actually just all I knew. I didn't know anybody in the arts and entertainment. We're both children of immigrants. So it was like always ingrained, you know, it wasn't like you have to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, but these are great professions, right? And I just didn't know any better. I wasn't exposed to anything else. And so I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I, I was really good at math and physics and I really, I just loved it. And so I saw a brochure, I think it was like my junior year in high school of, for Stanford. And I grew up in middle America and I just saw the palm trees and the blue skies and just like great athletics. And I was very sporty too at the time. And they had one of the best engineering programs. Like I want to go there. Like I, I just yeah. I, I had no context. I, I I mean, I don't know anybody that went there, but I'm like, that's that's where I want to go. Again, it was like something in my gut that was telling me that like that's where I have to be. And I got there and I explored lots of different majors and ultimately I landed on mechanical engineering because I was, you know, very creative. Again, this is there is this creative energy about me that like I still needed to explore. And so at Stanford, there's this whole year where you focus on design, product design. And oh, I wow. really, so okay. it's not just the analytics. I mean, that's definitely involved, but you design things, right? You make things, you produce things. And I thought that was really exciting. I entered a bunch during my time 
at Stanford uh, in the engineering field. And I realized quickly that I actually didn't want to be practicing that per se. I wanted to do something that was more, I didn't want to be in a cubicle. I want to be more people facing and uh, not the one like drawing up plans. And so I went from that cubicle to another, which was McKinsey and Company, but at least that was more people facing and thinking in just a slightly different way. But again, I went into McKinsey and Company. It was really hard to get that job, first of all. It wasn't like an easy thing. Oh, for sure. Right? Um, But all the the banks and the consulting companies come to these universities and recruit heavily, right? So it was all I knew. It was like, if you get a really good college degree, why don't you go off to be a banker or a consultant? I don't know if that's still the case. Yeah. This was like a while ago. I, I, right? I guess we're of similar vintage, but that was definitely the case when I was in school. And I think it still is to a degree. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the on-campus interview schedule. And, you know, like you said, the, they're looking for the cream of the crop. They recruit heavily at certain schools, but it's still incredibly competitive. And yeah. you were just sort of going with the flow, right? And then at some point, you're like, I want to become an act. I, I've always <laughs> wanted to maybe be an actress at some point on some level, but like, I yeah. want to like really take the dive and do it. And so I found myself, I found myself in New York working like 80 hours a week at McKinsey and, um, liked it, but I knew it wasn't a long term. It wasn't, I wasn't going to go off and make partner. My heart just wasn't in it. And what had happened at the same time in parallel was I randomly screen tested for like this VJ position for like a, a South Asian network. And oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And okay. During my senior year, I also did the Miss India America pageant as like, and you just won. like a ran- Yeah. It was, it was a random thing because one of my yeah. uh, college friends, she was a few years older than me and she was also Indian American. She's like, Melanie, I did that. And she had like one, you know, Miss India, Oklahoma or something like that. She's like, it's a great pageant. It's a great. And she's like a brilliant entrepreneur now. Right. She's like, whatever you do in life, this is just such a great opportunity experience platform. I was also, I love dancing. I was doing, I was doing a lot of things. Right. She's like, just harness your energy and do it. So I didn't tell anybody about it because I was so, I was a little embarrassed because I was, I was never like a, pageant girl. I had a, an idea of what a pageant girl was in my mind, but I was more of a, a tomboy. I'm like, oh, that's not me. People will judge me if I do that. So I didn't tell anybody I was doing it except oh, wow. a, a week before I told my parents and they came in for it. It was in California. And I told a couple of my friends at the time. So they came in and I was like, but if I'm going to do this thing, like I'm going to do a good job. Like, let me just try. I'm, win. <laughs> I'm like, let me just try to win. Gonna- yeah. I'm not showing up to like not win. Yeah, exactly. I'm not going to do all this not to not win. But that was your first pageant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was like a prelim and won. thing. Oh, wow. and, I won. and the producers of that pageant was this South Asian TV network, right? And they were based in New York. So when I moved to New York to work for McKinsey and Company, they were like, oh, you're going to be in New York. You should screen test for this thing. You could do it on the weekends. And so I was just doing that kind of stuff on the weekends. And after a little bit of time, I realized that I don't like hosting things. I don't like um, interviewing people on the red carpet for their film premieres. I'm like, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be on the screen. Like, you want to be wa- the subject of the interview uh, as opposed to. Yeah, not from like a vanity perspective, but like I wanted to be the one creating the work on sure. screen or, you know, acting on screen and then telling people about it. 
right? And so uh, through that process, though, I met other actors, you know, at these red carpets or when I was interviewing people and I was like, hey, like, how, how do you do what you do? How did you become an actor? And I would just hear all of these stories. And uh, do you remember Asif Manvi? Or remember, do you know yeah. Asif Manvi? You know Asif Manvi. Um, yeah. He's incredible. And so he was one of my first interviews. And he's like, oh, if, you, if you're interested, you should take a class here with this acting teacher. Um, you should also sign your up yourself up for improv classes. And so I was like, okay, let me do that. So I started signing myself up for all of these classes, courses. This is while working full time, right? While working full time. Yeah. Maybe not 80 hours every week, but when I had the time, you know, I tried to carve out, carve out like 7 to 10 PM on Tuesdays. I was doing my improv at UCB in New York. On weekends, I'd be doing these hosting gigs. Eventually I wrote a two person show and I was performing that and I was hosting events. Again, I didn't love the hosting, but I was also performing these comedic sketches while I was doing it. And so one thing led to another and an assistant at a really great talent agency happened to come across some of my work. And this was maybe just like four or five months in to McKinsey. He was like, why you don't do this? Oh, that's yeah. He's like, well, you don't do, I didn't leave. I didn't quit then. He's like, what, what you work at McKinsey and you're doing this kind of stuff. And at that point in time, there weren't many South Asian faces on screen. He's like, I think you have something going here. Whenever you decide to quit your job, give me a call. And yeah, about a year later, I decided to quit my job and I called him up and he was in LA. I was like, hey, can you help me out? And he started submitting me for auditions. Your decision point was probably more gradual, right? Because you having won that pageant, it started the process of opening doors and then it gave you more exposure than someone that was, let's say you were a full-time consultant and you weren't doing the stuff on the weekends and you weren't taking improv classes and you just were like, hey, I'm a really big fan of film and TV. I want to, it wasn't like you, you changed everything on a dime. It was more gradual. It was, it was gradual leading up to me quitting. I had built a small network of supporters, you know, agents that wanted to represent me. I had a source of income. I was doing print commercial modeling, which is not like I'm too small to be a, a fashion, like a runway model. But if you are advertising products, like here's a water bottle, like you need an everyday person. So I was making an income doing that kind of work. Right. And I would sneak away from my job occasionally, or there's periods where you're on the beach where you're like in between projects. And I would try to like fit in these little gigs here and there. So anyways, before I quit, I had uh, a plan. When I'm on the beach, I'm just trying to fit in meals. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think I was, uh, before I made that jump, I think people were like, oh, it was so courageous of you to do it. And sure, I think in one one side of it was like I had to have the courage inside of me, but I also was seeking validation that this is something that could actually do for some, you know, I don't know is because again, I wasn't exposed to this industry. I'd never done acting before. I was never really on stage in a performer kind of capacity. So I was waiting for people in the industry to be like, Oh, you know, you have something you should consider that versus like, I've never done this before. Like, I don't know if I'm good. I'm like, okay, maybe I could be good. And I had like a plan for income And there was like a health issue that also I had to address, which made me realize I can't be doing two things at once. And I really had to, you, we talked about like trusting your body when you need rest. And I think I was just doing too many things. And so I had to make a choice and that was the turning point for me. 
because I was trying to justify things, compartmentalize. I should be doing this, but I really want to do this. And then I just had to make the choice for my for my own health. Well, I guess it was gradual, but you decided there was a voice inside of you that said, hey, let me pursue this. Initially, sort of in my free time on the weekends, uh, because you know, there's an opportunity cost when you're at a place like McKinsey or, you know, at a law firm or a bank or whatever, there's an opportunity cost when you take the plunge and do something unproven off the beaten path. And then when it became something that resonated with who you are as a person, you're like, you know what, this is my dream. I want to, I have to go for it as opposed to like, let me keep deferring this. And at a certain point you can't do both. Right. I, I think a lot of people say that, you know, Zarna, who we know well and is a close friend, she took 16 years out of the quote unquote workforce to focus on being a mom. You know, that was her her number one priority. And then she was always a funny person who started becoming, you know, like more intentional about creating content and doing shows during the pandemic and look mm-hmm. at where she's come now. But she's yeah. like her her primary focus is her business and it's being a comedian and all the things that that entails. And I think for me, I, I did improv when I was working at Marvel and I've done other things aside hustles and and whatever. But like, I'm first and foremost a lawyer and I i don't think you know seriously about really doing something else. I do them as hobbies. But in your case, it's just completely different because you're on a whole nother level. So I am curious. I want to transition a little bit. Actually, we can take a quick break. Let's take a quick break and come back with a little nitty gritty as, as far as the acting versus producing. Okay, so Melanie, we're back. And I noticed you're an actress and a producer. You said your dream as a child was to be an actress, but you also wanted to tell stories. Can you get into A, a little bit about the distinction and B, whether a lot of actors are producers or is it something? Because from my experience, producers put shows together, they can raise capital. And sometimes if an actor, writer, director is really well established and has like a large following or command in the industry, then they can become producers because they can, you know, they have a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, can you tell me about that? And you said earlier that you you write and I noticed you're a WGA member too. So mm-hmm. even within entertainment, you wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think you actually summed it up pretty nicely in terms of what a producer does. Like there's, there's so many different roles. There's people that provide the funding. There's people that are creative producers that so purely provide creative consultation. There's people like me that have an idea, maybe bring writers on board and then pitch it to bigger studios that can give them funding and give them distribution. And actors, you know, have a script and they create a character, they work with the directors, they work with the writers if they have an opportunity to, and that's what you see on screen. But a producer literally produces, right? They see the script and they take those words they take, okay, there's, you know, this scene is shot in a bedroom and there's a cow that walks through that. They're like, okay, how are we going to make that come to life on screen? There's people that do the nitty gritty. They're like, okay, well, we have to get a cow and we have to get a location. And then someone's like, we have to pay for that. So where's the money coming from? And then there's the uh, director saying like, you know what? That's the wrong color of cow. Like we can't have that. That doesn't tell the story. Right. And so it's this whole ecosystem and they're very different hats. They're extremely different hats. And there's one indie project that I'm working on right now. I'll be acting in it, but I also came on board as an executive producer, one of two executive producers until we get more financiers involved. But a lot of my job right now is 
fundraising. Prior to the fundraising stage, we're actually in tangent. I've also been focusing on the creative development, workshopping the script with the director and the other actress. And it is a little challenging to do both, but I just have to like pick and choose my time and just focus on that because I'm like, okay, creatively, we want to do this. But I know on the producing side, we might not have the budget for it. So it is this balance of the two, but I I really, well, I don't like asking people for money. So that's one thing, but everything else it's about producing. Skill. Yeah. I hate asking yeah. people for favors and all of that, but um. But it's, it's, it's essential. Honestly, the power in Hollywood comes from money. Like who's giving person that can get the most money and the person that's writing the checks, right? Projects cannot sure. happen without money. So it is a, it is a pivotal role and someone's got to do it. Unfortunately. No, I was um, a talent lawyer briefly. I did represent writers and most writers I think could, or at least most of the writers I worked with had aspirations to become directors. And so one of the ways to get your foot in as a director is to like write a really good script and then say, if you want to make this script, you have to let me direct it. And then when you become an established director, you not, you can direct other people's scripts that are great. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking maybe actress becoming your producer is like, well, maybe there's a project that you really want to work on and they don't have the funding. So you're like, well, you know what? I can try to help raise that. And then mm -hmm. boom, you become a producer. And I, I guess really quickly, since it is kind of a news show as well, we talked a lot this summer and fall about the SAG and WGA strikes. Did you feel like you were, obviously you were impacted, but did you feel like, you know, you were going to go with whatever the, the group decided or did you have a strong conviction either way? Did you think the strike was too long? Do you think they gave up uh, too soon? If you're allowed to comment, if you're not, it's, it's fine. Yeah, I, I think everyone is allowed to comment. Everyone has their voice and their chance to express it. I think a lot of people don't because they're worried about being blacklisted, uh, you know, from whatever entity because they spoke up about something. And um, I don't know, that could be the case, but it might not be the case. For me, I was really proud of our union for pushing back as much as they did because it was mm -hmm. essential. There were a lot of changes that needed to be made. There's so many actors. I mean, you'd be surprised, like, you know, writers are working on these projects now, whereas, you know, years ago, when you do a TV series, there'd be like 10, there'd be like 15, 20 episodes a year and you're, you know, getting a right. paycheck. And now all of these shows and networks and streaming, it's like eight. And then you're kind of blocked yeah. out for a while just to work on that. And then there's no residual, there's not proper residual compensation. And then the same thing with actors as well. And there was that issue, right? And then there was the AI, which I think is a huge, huge threat to our jobs. Um, but like they needed to push back as much as they could because there really wasn't any blueprint. And networks and production companies, they had rearranged to kind of do whatever. And it's scary, the technology that's coming out. Like studios are being built where we're just going to create a completely AI project with non-actors, just these entities that look like they could be human, right? I am all for, I was all for ending the SAG strike when it was time to ratify the vote, but I was still a little bit, because people just need to get back to work. People need to make a living, right? right? It's not just actors, sure. it's, it's everybody that's affected. Every single person, right? Makeup artists, crew, uh, you caterers. know, caterers, everybody. So in that sense, like, I'm like, yes, everybody's got to go back to work. But I did have reservations on the AI. 
And I know that they worked their best, worked at like pushed as much as they could. And I think we're in a better place, but I'm just scared about the unknown. Well, that's and to I, come. Listen, I, I, most of my clients are on the studios, networks, streamers. And if there's no rule against it, they're going to kind of do it. Right. So their objective yeah. is to make content for as little as possible within, you know, obviously there's a market. And if they need to pay for, you know, VFX or talent or locations or whatever, they're going to pay. But wherever there's areas where they can save, they're going to. And if there's like streaming came on the scene 2009 and it was described as experimental and no one at the, at the union and guild level was focused on it because they were really focused on improving the network minimums and the network residuals and pension health and welfare. And they're like, if you're making a streaming show, it's just whatever, negotiate whatever you want. And then fast forward 10, 15 years later, it's like streaming is the dominant form of content mm-hmm. spend and consumption. And it's no longer, hey, negotiate whatever you want. There needs to be protection. So I, I get that. I just feel like, you know, the studios have much deeper pockets than the individual, unless you're in the very top fraction of a percent of the writers and actors. They don't have mm-hmm. the war chest to go on without working. But I'm curious about, you said you had reservations about AI. And I, I guess I'd say, let's present a hypothetical. You get the opportunity to be the lead in, let's say, a film and not um, a, a TV show. Let's say it's the opportunity of a lifetime. You're leading a film. They pay you eight figures, right? And But they say, we want the ability to use you or recreate you in perpetuity without your further consent. Do you do that? Do you agree oh. to that? And they say, if you're not willing to agree to this, we can't. We have to move on. <laughs> uh, perpetuity meaning like create more movies just off of my likeness? Yeah, like they could build a whole franchise without you. I mean, eight, fi- eight figures. I'm not sure that's is, possible is, under the current agreement. Yeah. I, I Well, I think consent is definitely involved now. Um, but if you're saying hypothetically. Well, hypothetically, yeah. No, they, they send you a separate form and they say, oh, yeah, your read was great. All the deal terms are closed. Here's just this one piece of paper on AI, the final thing that we need. Um, my initial thought on that is eight figures is a lot of money, and I could do a lot yeah. with that over the course of my career, right? And so you might be looking at it as an opportunity cost. Well, if they're going to use me to make another franchise, I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's another eight figures or more that I could be missing out on. But this one eight-figure job is going to open up. That's kind of my quote now, essentially. Right, yeah, right? yeah, and sure. It, it makes you a much bigger my, star. Yeah, and if I'm not doing, and if they're using me, making more franchise, they're making a lot of money off of me and maybe without my consent, I'm still going to get paid a decent check for all these future projects. So I think for that question, maybe yes. If it was a nominal amount, absolutely no. Absolutely right. not. Well, I think I think what's going to happen, that hypo is probably, and the reason I picked it is because I think it is a situation that's unlikely to arise because if someone's <laughs> going to get an eight-figure payday, they probably have the leverage to put guardrails around or royalty around any yeah. sort of digital likeness. And really, I think it's going to be the people who are getting you know scale or, or close to scale that are going to be forced with that question as to whether they want to consent to really broad digital yeah. creation rights. Yeah. But- it's it's a tricky thing. And I think if you were, I mean, sometimes maybe you may be a producer who's helping fill out a cast and you may have to sign off on the form 
they the 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 financier may say, hey, we want really aggressive AI rights. Uh, Melanie, make sure that all our cast agrees. Interesting. Would they ever do that? Oh, would I? Uh, I don't know. Probably. I think everyone should have the right to consent to know how they're going to be used. And if it is, I know I, I'm not contradicting what I said earlier because I do support that if it's an 18, if it's an eight figure salary, that's like one consideration. But if it's scale, absolutely. I'd want precautions in place. I actually don't know if, how they're going to use me in the future. What if they use me in like a, what if they make me like undress me? What if they make me doing something violent, right? There's all these potential things. So you have to keep that in mind. And is that money worth that risk at, the present moment. Right. But my lawyer would never let me sign anything like that. I'm sure you would never let your client sign anything like that. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it it is informed consent, but you would have to ultimately, you know, frame it and narrow it and say, if it's a deviation from this, if it's a natural extension, you know, maybe that's okay. If it's enhance it, just run it by me. But if it's a completely separate, unrelated project, there needs to be fresh compensation. But at some point, someone's going to you know, the studio may may move on. That's that's the hypothetical. But I don't think there's a straight answer for it. I do think, as you said, the SAG agreement now requires informed consent for each project yeah. uh, where a digital recreation will be used. So it does give you the opportunity to renegotiate or say no. I did want to ask a little bit about fundraising and then we can get into the lightning round. Just in terms of fundraising, it's it's challenging for me too. I mean, I don't necessarily do a lot of fundraising for myself or for businesses, but for nonprofits that I'm on the board of or that I'm associated with, I have to ask people to donate. And even though it's a great cause, it's always a, not always, but it's often a difficult conversation. When you're in the film and TV space, who are the ideal folks to pitch and what goes to a, into a successful pitch in your eyes? I think a, well, there's so many different, entities to pitch to, right? You can pitch, you know, we're doing an independent film, so we're pitching to individuals, right? We're not pitching to studios at that point. That's another route, but because of the the writer strike, you know, we weren't even able to do that. But now you, we can technically take this to a production company. We can have our our deck, our creative deck, our pitch deck. Uh, we could bring in the actors, the director, and you can do this whole sort of a 20 minute pitch in the room or an hour long pitch. And and you would do that to a certain extent for individual investors. It just might be me and a colleague talking about it. I send them materials and I'm like, okay, I'll give you, you know, here's a sum of money. I think what makes a great pitch, no matter who your audience is, really believing in the product, right? And I mean, any entrepreneur has yeah. to be like really, really fundamentally believing in like, not, not like this is going to make a lot of money because most most films don't make money. Most independent projects don't, but like really believing in the creative and believing in each person involved. And then catering the pitch to what value is most valuable to that production company or that individual. Like for me, the story is about sisters. And so if I'm pitching to another woman that has a sister or like is a mother of two daughters, I'm able to shape the conversation more towards why this is an important story to tell for, for, uh, you know, family, family audience. Or if I'm speaking to someone that's really into like the genre, like this is a dark fantasy genre. Like I'm going to talk about how the director is just 
um, you know, he's award-winning in this dark fantasy genre. He's written all these graphic novels and I make that part of it very exciting and specific to them. So it's all about catering um, to who you're talking to. And then some people just really want to see the numbers, right? So then I have the financial information. I did my research. I have the data that points to like, you know, this type of movie in the past has made this uh, you know, this, this, this amount of a return, but I'm more real. I'm very realistic about it. Right. You have like one movie I've seen pitches where it's like, Oh, you know, game of Thrones was a huge success. And then we have this like dink, not dinky, but like, you know, we're trying to make this $10,000 short film. That's, you know, in the same genre. I'm like, that doesn't, that's Just not to make people forget about game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I hear it, it. You're like, that's the comp. I mean, I, I think that is, uh, to a degree, there is some salesmanship there, but I think the more you can make it authentic and tailor it to the audience, I think that's that's definitely helpful. And comps help, but ultimately, like entertainment is a it's a risky business, right? Yeah. It's just not everything pans out, and in fact, most most don't. Can you tell me what projects you're most excited about on your upcoming or anything? Yeah. Uh, sure. I I recently wrapped a feature. It was a big ensemble comedy called Dead Guy, and it stars Michael Shannon, Ava Longoria, Judy Greer, Luis Guzman. Um, and that was a blast to film. And so we just wrapped the other month, and I think they're editing it right now, so I'm not sure exactly <laughs> when it'll come out, but I'm sure they want to submit to festivals and all of that. I'm really excited about this independent film. I've been mentioning over and over again that I'm producing and acting in. I think there's... Uh, something, Does it have a tentative title? Does it have a yeah, title? Yeah, um, it tongue like the language like okay. first a tongue, um, but it's about these two sisters that get trapped in their late grandmother's home and have to use this fairy tale language she taught them in order to get out before awakening these creatures that exist. Um, so Is it it's, horror? Or it's, just yeah, dark? it's it's like dark fantasy horror. It's not horror in the sense that okay. it's like a slasher film or anything, but it's dark fantasy. It's very thrilling and you're kind of on the edge of your seat and there's, you know, these scary creatures that exist, but ultimately it's, you know, it's, it's about these. It's like Guillermo del Toro kind of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. You took the words out of my mouth. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. And then I'm just excited to get back into the game. We've been on strike for so long and auditions are starting to pick up now. So I love reading new scripts and auditioning is just part of the job. It's the main part of the job. And so it's like now every week I'm, you know, doing two or three auditions and getting into characters. And then I'm also writing my own projects and producing. So, you know, there's, there's lots to look forward to for sure. Yeah, no, that's well, thank you for making time. Let's do a quick lightning round. Favorite TV show. Breaking Bad. Oh, I agree. That's a good show. Yeah. Great show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York or LA? New York. Okay. And who's the coolest person that you've worked with? Uh, Cal Penn, by far. Oh, by far. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. And Luis, and Louis, Luis Guzman is also pretty cool. Okay, so Cal Penn yeah. and Luis Guzman. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Melanie. I know uh, you're pressed for time doing a million things, um, as always. I can't thank you enough for making time. It was, was an honor. And I hope we can hang again in person soon. Yeah, this is a blast. Thank you so much. Thanks. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Take care, everyone.